0: we're on verse 15 we are we're in um, 11th chapter right at the very end of it and and to kind of get us back into where we're at chapter 11 verse 15 right what we're what we're kinda picturing here is as we get to this last trumpet that will blow uh, we're we're right in what we call that third cycle of uh, out of seven cycles that revelation Takes us through, and uh, we kind of come back to this each week. But it's it's good to put it into your mind that that revelation is not a linear start here in here book. It's circular, right? So it it talks about the same subject. It just does it seven different times. And and what you're doing is each time you're circling around that subject, and you're getting a little bit more information. You're seeing that God in the last days is releasing a little bit more, a little bit more, a little bit more authority to uh, our enemy and to the enemy of the world. And uh, the purpose for that, of course, is to, is to bring people back uh, to himself. So when you get to the seventh trumpet, you're at the very end of that third cycle, and it starts off with the words, the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices that were saying, the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our, our Lord and his Christ. And last week, you know, the question that I was asking you was, uh, when you read those words, the kingdom, the kingdom has become, has become the Lord's and his Christ. And In your mind, there should be a little voice that goes off and you ask a question, right? And the question that you're asking is, well, hasn't it always been his? The kingdom of this world has become, right, the Lord's and his Christ. Well, what do you mean it's become it? It's, it's always been his. Well, on one hand, that's true, that uh, today the, the world, everything in it, it belongs entirely to God. Right, um, I always think about this in, in Colossians, where you have uh, what I call the the third creation story. Right, first creation story Genesis one, second creation story Genesis two, third creation story Colossians one. And uh, while Genesis really talks to us about how, how God goes about creating, and in particularly man and woman, uh, a, a beautiful picture. Colossians puts Jesus at the center of things and we know when we read Jesus when we read Genesis that all three parties all three persons of the Trinity are involved in the creation of the world right but what Colossians does it turns the spotlight on Jesus Christ and says that Jesus Christ created the world and all that it is in it you and me for himself and so when we we get to the end of the book and we have this picture of Jesus, like the groom coming for his bride. There's that marriage that takes place between between us and Jesus, a very intimate intimate picture. So again, the kingdom of this world has become the Lord's in His Christ. Well, hasn't it always been that? Y- yes, yes, and yet no, right? No, in the sense that that after creation and after the fall, God puts this curse upon His own creation. The purpose of the curse is what? What's the purpose of the curse? Yeah, to bring us back to Him. Okay? So last week we were looking at at one of my favorite sections of Scripture that goes hand in hand with this. Romans chapter 8. And um, in Romans, just kind of listen to these words. This is the creation. The creation. That means even the earth. Even the inanimate earth. Waits with eager longing. For the revealing of the sons of God. In other words, the, the, the world itself, uh, the trees, the grass, the, 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 the bugs, all of it. All of creation. Longing for the revealing of the sons of God. And here, here's why. For the creation was subjected to futility not willingly. You know, Adam, Adam and Eve didn't willingly say, yes, place this curse upon us. They, they would say, what well, don't, don't put that curse upon us. God says No but because of him who subjected it in the hope, I think these words are important, they're out of Romans 8, in the hope that the creation itself would be set free from its bondage and obtain the freedom of the glory of God. So why why am I doing this to you, earth? Why am I doing this to you, men? To set you free from it, right? To break your, your stubborn spirits. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning. I heard a lot of that yesterday in Nebraska. <laughs> a lot of groaning yesterday in Nebraska, right? Oh, my goodness. The whole creation has been groaning as if in the pains of childbirth. You know, you ever think about that, that uh, a, a hurricane? You know, I mean, do you, some, some of you guys remember, you remember what they told you in that class? You know, when your wife is getting ready, you're getting ready, you're going to have a baby, and they get you in that class, and they teach you those nice little things, you know. <sighs> Does that work? No. <laughs> 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 they taught me just one thing, and I forgot it, actually. They said, now, a woman is very strong, and you're going to find that out when she gives birth because, um, I mean, if you give her your hand, she'll, she'll grab it, and hard. And I'm like, oh, okay. And they says, so if you have a ring on it, you might want to take it off because it, it can be like it could indent your hand. I, I didn't take mine off. It was whack. I'm like, oh. <laughs> we were both groaning. I'm telling you right now. But do you ever think about that, that like a hurricane or a tornado, is the earth groaning? And, and, and nobody thinks about this. We're like, oh, it's a horrible thing. Well, it is a horrible thing. I mean, we see a tornado, we, we run, right? Get, get, get to the basement. Uh, but it's actually, if you if you stop for just a minute and think about it, I look at that tornado and I go, "That's the earth groaning, that's crying out, fix me, I'm broken, right? And there is no fixing it, no no man can fix it. Only only God can deliver us. And so when when we're reading the Revelation here and this trumpet blows, what we're pointing to is that that point now in time, if we measure time where God is going to say, yes, I will fix it. It's now we're, we're taking us intentionally to judgment day. This is when we're able to say uh, here in verse number 15 that the kingdom of the world has become our Lord's and his Christ's. Now, another question I like to ask people is, why does it say it that way? Has become our Lord's and his Christ's. Two different words, right? Our Lord's and his Christ's. Okay. Why, do we, why do we separate those two? Okay. Typically, we use the word Lord, we would use it to refer to who? To, to Jesus, right? I mean, typically we say, oh, Lord, you're my, you're my Lord, right? Um, if you've ever been around the, the Christian science, science community, uh, Christian science is a, a religion that grew out of the metaphysical studies of a gal named Mary Baker Eddy. <clears throat> and what Mary Baker Eddy did in her in her uh, book Science and Health of the Key to the Scriptures is she actually took these two two terms Lord and Christ Jesus and Christ and tore them apart. And so if you're ever in a Christian Science church, you'll you'll sit down and you'll notice that they have a quotation from Jesus on one side of the building and a quotation from Christ on the other side of the building, and you're you're like what what. What's that? They're, they seem like they're two different things. Well, she would say they are. Mary Baker Eddy in Christian Science says Jesus was just a person, like we're people, right? Christ, she referred to as the principles that Jesus taught when he was alive. Those principles are the principles of metaphysics which make up the heartbeat of the Christian science community today. What's happened is Mary Baker Eddy has just missed the whole of what these terms actually mean. The term Lord usually is referring to Jesus. In this case, it's very appropriately referring to who? To God, to the whole of the Trinity. All right. Uh, to the to the Father who is the, the one who created, and of his Christs. The kingdom of this world has become that of the Lord's Yahweh God and of His Christs. Separate it out to, to suggest something, that it's through Jesus Christ that the world has been and in the end will be redeemed fully, made right, set free, because go back to that Colossians creation story. We were made for Jesus. And so that's why the distinction there, separating the two out, it belongs to God, and yet it's through Jesus Christ that we're redeemed. And it's He... he who we are in this beautiful relationship with that will endure for eternity. And it simply says that at the end of verse number 15, and he shall reign. He will be the king forever and ever. Last week we said it's that beautiful piece out of Handel's uh, Messiah that is captured here. Go to verse 16. It says, now the 24 elders. Remember who the 24 elders are. The 24 elders who sat on their thrones before God fell on their faces, and they, they worshiped God. Okay, so this, they're not new. We've seen the 24 elders before. Remember why 24? 12 tribes of Israel, right? 12 tribes of Israel. So really, they represent the whole of those in the Old Testament who have gone on before us. All right? So all these souls of people that, that believed and trusted in the, the, the Christ, they called it the Messiah, you know, who are today souls in heaven before God, along with the other 12, right, the 12 apostles, 12 and 12, 24, 12 apostles representing the New Testament church, all those who have died and gone on before us and in heaven, all of those souls, right, uh, in heaven are, are doing what? They, they fall down on their faces and they proskunuo, God. And I always like that term. I always like to come back to these terms because they help, they help reframe me a lot of what it means to, to live out the calling of God uh, in our lives today. When we think of worship today, you know, unfortunately, a lot of us think of worship as, as something as something for me, right? Well, 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 it is for me, right? But it's also, what is worship? Worship is our, what, falling down on our faces before God. There's a, there's a sense in which worship is releasing to God, all that belongs to Him. It's surrendering before God, and uh, sometimes I think our American culture, especially when it comes to worship, I know I know you've you've experienced this. Uh, as a pastor, you definitely experienced this. It is a very consumeristic culture, right? And so, as a consumeristic culture, we've kind of built this idea that well, now worship, worship needs to 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 fit me, right? It's gotta it's gotta if I'm gonna worship, it's gotta have all these criteria in it. Uh, otherwise, you know, I'm, I'm not gonna do it. I'm not, I, that's not, that's not worship, okay? And, and I find myself in this consumer-oriented uh, world, there's, there's a lot of pressure put upon churches to, to do what? You gotta make your worship service what? Pow! You gotta really make it, make it, make it something else. Why? Well, because you're competing with other people. And I think, well, in the midst of all that, have we lost what it means to worship? I mean it's just a question. Because proskunuo is the Greek word that's at the heart of worship and here's what it means surrender. Lay down before God. Give up your rights, your wants, your needs, my me. I lay me down before God and I say I all of it belongs to you. Okay? So on one hand, I don't I, I'm not a guy who stands up and says, you know, you you shouldn't, you know, you shouldn't uh, pay attention to, you know, what what really serves people's hearts well and worship at the same time i i really stand afraid that in a consumeristic culture we've kind of lost that sense that worship is not about me it's about this god who owns me entirely all my time all my life who i am to come into 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 church is a radical thing for our culture today it's radical because what you're saying, culture all, all week long, all day, every day is saying to you, you're God. You deserve this. You need this. You want this. Here, buy this. Take this into your life all week long. And you walk in on a Sunday morning, right? And, and the message is the opposite of that. Who are we? We're clay pots. Cracked pots, as a matter of fact. Who own nothing? Who are Who are what? Our, our greatest joy is to surrender before God and say, Lord, take my life and use it according to your will. I really think it's, it's radical in our culture today. It should be radical in our culture today. This is what worship is. And you see that in heaven, you do not have people arguing over worship styles. Isn't that true? I, I always, I, I had one, one gal in, in the church we served in Dallas. I love her to death. I really, is just such a beautiful gal. She, she actually lived through, you know, the Hitler regime in Germany and has memories of that as a, as a kid. And, and uh, uh, so, so in her mind, you know, here, this is what worship is. She hated guitars. I mean, just, just say it. She just hated them. She called them plunk plunks. So one so one uh, evening, I think it was an Advent service. We, we decided we're going to have, you know, we're going to have just some nice kind of acoustical music. So wa- she walks in. She goes, "Is there plunk plunk?" <laughs> and I said, "Yeah, there's plunk plunk today." And uh, she says, "No plunk plunk." And I said, "Well, you're you're German." I said, you know, Silent Night, you know that was, that was played on, on the guitar, right? That was written and played on the guitar, Silent Night. You like Silent Night, don't you? She goes, it's because of the mouse. And I'm like, what? And she goes, the mouse ate the bellows in the organ, so they had to use the plunk plunk. <laughs> Blame it on the mouse, all right. Well, every once in a while, I would kid her. I'd say, what are you going to do if there's plunk plunk in heaven? Are you going to ask for a transfer? I don't think so. <laughs> no, you see, there just is not that. There is that sense of absolute surrender before this almighty God that you see in heaven. And it just helps me think again about what did I come in here to do today? You know, to, to, to do what? To say, God, I give up. You're mine. Uh, I'm yours. And to give ourselves to him. There, what they say uh, as you look at this quotation, really comes out of a number of different scriptures, particularly the psalms. Uh, but when you hear their worship it's a beautiful it's a beautiful message. We give thanks to you, Lord God, almighty. You know, we've come to say to you we 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 surrender and we give you thanks. you're the one who is and who was, and notice the one thing that 's missing there. We usually say you're the one who who, was and is and is to come. Well, this is the is to come. <laughs> this is judgment day, right? So we don't need to say it. You're the one who is and who was. You have taken your great power and you have begun to reign. And now out of the Psalms, verse 18, and I think it's just a, just a really um, kind of a, a, a a cool statement here um, the nation's raged but your wrath came for the time for the dead to be judged uh, you know we'll talk a little bit later as we get into this this last part of Revelation about what we call Armageddon you know and and this sense that the nation's rage against God that as we get into that half a time period that last period of time we see a greater focus upon the, the government and um, accompanying the government, e- even the this, this, this spiritual world that uh, is, is really bowing down to uh, and, and giving their, their worship to, to Satan, who hates God. And to the last moment, to the very last moment, will still rage against God and his church. For rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, for those who fear your name, both small and great, and for dis- de- and I love this language uh, for destroying the destroyers of the earth, now is the time for judgment, okay, I want you to look at this. we've referred to this a couple of times this this judgment scene, and I want you to kind of put a few things together, so I'm going to have you turn with me over to. Um, this scene here in First Thessalonians chapter four, um, and it's 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 really out of First Thessalonians that you you get a picture, I think a right picture, of what what Judgment Day looks like. First Thessalonians four. Go to verse thirteen. You know, when Paul was writing this letter to the, to the Christians living in Thessalonica, remember with me that, that, that since the very beginning, since, Jesus, since the promise of Jesus was made, I, I will give you the promise of the seed, the seed will come and crush the head of the servant. Since, since that day, Adam and Eve lived with the expectation that they would see Judgment Day. They lived with that expectation. So for all of these years, we, we have, as the body of Christ, live with this expectancy that you hear in Romans 8, that sense of groaning, Lord, when, when will this come? Okay? Um, when Paul is writing to the Thessalonians in Thessalonica, one of the things as you read through that book that becomes apparent is this was a group of Christians who very much thought that the judgment day would come in their time. And in fact, Paul had to chastise them Because they began to even do things like sell their houses and sell their businesses. We don't need him anymore because he's going to come now. And Paul chastises them and says, you don't know the day of the Lord. You don't know when that day will come. Don't, Don't sell your house and, you know, sell your business and all that foolish stuff. Just live. Just live your life. Live out your calling until the day comes. But don't be ignorant about it. And so in verse 13, he really gives us this scene. I want you to put it together in your mind. He says, we don't want you to be uninformed about those who are asleep, that you don't grieve like other people who have no hope. Okay? Um, I love to use this scripture uh, at, at funerals and be able to say, this person is, we say what, Dead. One of the words the, the Bible uses is this person is asleep. Okay? Now what we know is um, it's not right. Uh, you, you can't support, scripturally, this idea of soul sleep. Uh, you, you'll run into all kinds of trouble scripturally if you do. But there are churches that try to do it. There are churches that say, well, when you die, what happens is your soul goes into this state of sleep and you, you just wake up on judgment day and, and then you're with God for eternity. That's not supported. All of Revelation has shown us, in fact, this chapter shows us that the souls of those who got on before us are not asleep, they're worshiping. Now, I do know that there are some Lutheran churches where people are asleep in, in worship, but... Um, <laughs> But not this one, all right? <laughs> so, what he, what the, but the idea of sleep, I think, is significant. And again, I'm, I'm not going to claim to be like the, the world scholar on this, because I'm not. But I, I've come over my years in life to believe that there's a sense in which, you know, we use this word, he, he died or she died. I, I don't really like that language. I think it's misleading. You know, I, I like to say this person's body stopped working, you know, because that's what'll happen: is your body just stops working, your heart stops beating, and your brain stops thinking, and you're clinically ready to be put somewhere else, right? Okay, but did the did you just are you done? Are you dead? No. Who am I? At, at the heart of Luke is a soul, right? Does that soul ever die? No. There's no moment of cessation. There's no moment where, okay, your soul stops here and then it, it comes back to life here. No, it's, it's continuous, all right? So what happens to our souls is, is our souls go to what we call heaven, which is, in my mind, an inter, intermediate place. It's the presence of God. It's a place where we, we do, as these elders are doing, worship God, sur- surrender to Him because you're, you're fully in His presence. Uh, now, the reason I like the word sleep, don't be ignorant about those who sleep, is I've come to believe that our experience of time in what we call heaven will be much like sleep. You know, when, when you finally do get in your bed and fall asleep, uh, you, you know, your, your mind becomes unconscious, and maybe you dream a little bit, but then you wake up, and there it is. You're in the day. And I, I really have come to believe that, that's one of the reasons this term is used throughout the new testament to describe death is that we go into this place where we're in the presence of god but much like sleep it is bam like that so i don't i don't picture heaven our existence in heaven as 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 being experienced in terms of A long period of of time even though we would say well what about my great 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 granddad they've been in heaven for a long long time i would say that's that's the way you experience time here as an earthbound person in eternity what is it like that and so i like that term and what paul is saying is don't don't be ignorant about those who who sleep for we believe what that jesus died and rose even so Through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. This we declare to you by a word from the Lord that we, here's, this is the rapture, all right? Everybody, what's the rapture? Here it is. We who are alive and who are left until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. This is interesting. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven, And with the cry of a command, and with the voice of an archangel, and the sound of a trumpet. It's interesting that we are studying the trumpet sounds. We're now at the seventh trumpet. The sound of that trumpet. The dead in Christ will rise first. The resurrection takes place. Okay? And uh, so if you're picturing this, resurrection day, the most happening place on earth are cemeteries. Right? Because the bodies are coming up. This, by the way, was a huge stumbling block uh, for the early apostles. The the Roman Greco mind was a very logical mind. And so the Romans stumbled over the idea of a resurrection uh, simply for the the logical fact that it it made no sense to them. How, How can this person who was eaten by a lion and excreted, excuse me, and uh, the rain came and was dispersed and becomes part of just the organic earth. How in the world is God going to resurrect that body, right? How is that going to happen? And so if you go back and you study preaching and you get into that second, third century time, you actually see preachers who are trying to make sense of this thing. They'll go, well, God numbers every cell, you know, and then he knows how to put it back together. Now, how did you come to be? God spoke a word, right? And what happened? The sun became, the moon became, the earth became. This God, you believe he needs like a chart, how to figure out how to do that? No. he's the God of creation and at his voice, at his command, and with the voice of an archangel. Guess what? The resurrection takes place. So what's happening is souls, souls are being reunited with bodies. What kind of bodies? Greek word, teleos. It's a beautiful word. There's nothing, nothing like it in English, all right, because it represents that type of body that our souls are resurrected with. What does it look like? It's a perfected body. What does that mean? Here's the beauty of the Greek language. We don't know. In other words, God simply says it this way. It's perfected. So we would say, the way I say it today to my buddy that's in a wheelchair, you know, and driving around, I tell him, you won't, you won't need a wheelchair. The is perfected. Closest thing that we've seen like it is the description of Jesus' body post-resurrection, right? He can eat fish and he can walk through a wall, right? It's a perfected body. And so this resurrection takes place with this shout, and it says the dead in Christ rise first. Now here's what, here's what the rapture is. The, those who, who are resurrected, who've died in, before us, are the first to actually rise up into the air. Okay. So when people talk about a rapture, here, here's the big mistake that, that so many make. They'll take the book of Revelation, they go, well, here's what the rapture, the rapture happens, you know, before all this bad stuff takes place. And, you know, the Christian, the Christians, if you're a real believer, you get sucked up and you're good to go. You're, you're in heaven and you can get your binoculars looked down and go, whew man, am I glad that's not me? No. No, 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 no. The whole book of Revelation, where have the Christians been? on earth okay when does the rapture take place people say you lutherans are you don't believe in rapture I go, yes we do what is what does rapture mean to be caught up into the air and that's exactly what happens is those who are resurrected are the first to be caught up into the air with jesus christ now notice the second thing that it says it says verse 17 then we who are alive who are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. All right, so we actually are rapture. You're taken off the face of planet Earth. If you happen to be alive in that day, which I hope that you're, you don't have to go through that, but if you, if you are, there we are. We're caught up in the air. Why are we in the air? Well, fill in the blank. What does what is, what is God get ready to do to the Earth? Destroy it entirely and remake it entirely. And so you actually, all of this happens like that, right? But you actually are caught up into the air. The world is destroyed. The world is remade. And then you come back down onto the new earth with Jesus Christ and the way Paul describes it as, so we will be with the Lord forever. So encourage each other with these words. I do like to encourage Christians with these words to remind, to remind our little kids your whole life, your whole life is a breath. And this is what happens in your life right now. The world's going to tell you. Everybody's going to tell you. Your teachers are going to tell you. Your, the university's going to tell you. The workplace is going to tell you. That this, this is it. M- make it count. Right? Um, your best life now. I'm like, no, 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 no. Your best life is not now. And so... You gotta go for all you can go for, right? And, and what the Bible teaches us is the opposite of that. It says, no, 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 our lives today are breath. then life begins. And to me, what's encouraging is, uh, I don't know about you, but some of these these some of these pains that this particular body is is getting to have, uh, I don't really want them forever. I you know, I would gladly. Get rid of them. And this is what Jesus is saying, is you won't have to endure those forever because your, your body will be remade, us. It will be made perfect. And you will be on an earth with God forever. Encourage each other. It's not just a pep talk. It's not just, hey, be encouraged. It's literally, this is how I gain my courage to live my life today. How do I gain my courage to stand in the face of a world that comes against me? How do I gain my courage to stand up even if it costs me my life? Because I know that this isn't it. That life is to begin again. And it's to begin for eternity. And so no wonder Luther in his day is able to write hymns that say, wait, take take my life if you must. Take it all. Let it all be gone. But this, this you cannot take. This faith that I have, this trust that I have in Jesus Christ. Teach our kids to live that way. I'm telling you 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 live that way you're bold in Jesus Christ and you have a real sense that all this stuff the world is telling me is so important it really isn't it is not but what is important is the way that I live my life uh, as as a servant of Jesus Christ that is important and so what you have now is this scene in the revelation that's taking us to that moment of the judgment that's taking place it is It is as we are caught up into the air with Jesus Christ that this separation of those who believe and those who do not believe takes place, the judgment day. Flip back over to Revelation. Okay, Okay, I got a big question for you. Here's my question is, was Indiana Jones right? All right, look at verse number 19. Then God's temple in the heaven was opened and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple there were flashes of lightning rumblings peals of thunder and earthquake and heavy hail so the question that i I always like to ask people is um, right there at the end of judgment as we're caught up in in the air with jesus christ Really what's happening is that the new, what we'll see in chapter 21, the new Jerusalem is, is made apparent. We can see it with our eyes. And the way that this is being described symbolically for, for John as he looks at it is he, he's able to see the temple open. The curtain is gone, right? And visible to me is the Ark of the Covenant. Why the Ark of the Covenant? Well, get the serious part, then I'm going go to go to a couple of just fun things. The serious side of this is the reason you see the Ark of the Covenant is it it symbolizes something, right? The, the covenant that God made through Jesus Christ with man. That those who trust and believe in Jesus Christ will be saved by his blood. Right? That's what the Ark has always meant. When the priest goes into the Holy of Holies, right, he goes in to do what? To sprinkle the blood on the... the Uh, seat of the altar the mercy seat on behalf of israel to say your sins are taken away through (laughs) through sacrifice to point to the coming of jesus christ well now that is visible in other words i'm saying to john john look the promise that was made all the way back in the garden This covenant that God has made with man is fulfilled now on this day, on Judgment Day. So as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus Christ, it's not a day of doom, it's a day of glory. It's a day to stand before God and say, based on the covenant that God has made through Jesus Christ, I will live with him forever and ever. Now for the fun part. Where is the ark? Where is the ark? I remember when we went to see that uh, historical novel film, uh, Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Tomb, right? It was kind of fun to say, well, where is that ark? But it is kind of an interesting question, is that that ark existed on planet Earth at one time, where, where is it today? And uh, the answer to that question actually lay in, in the Old Testament. Now, just this is kind of an interesting fact. By legend, I'm going to point to this one first, 2 Maccabees chapter 2. Remember, if you have a Catholic Bible, and I encourage you, you know, sometimes if you've never picked it up, get, get the get the Catholic Bible and get these books called the Apocryphal books. Don't build your faith or your theology on the Apocryphal books of the Bible. It's not a good idea. They're deuterocanonical. In other words, those who, who put together the Bible and the 66 books in it as canonical said, we do not accept these as canonical. They don't pass the tests that were set into place to include them as part of our scriptural canon. At the same time, Luther said, it's a really good idea to have this second canon and to be able to look at it and provide you with historical details that you miss if you don't have it. Maccabees, first and second, definitely do, because they help you see how the Jewish people were so zealous for their faith, how they came against Rome during this, this period of time that we're in, you know, when Rome is coming, coming against uh, the Christians. So when you look at 2 Maccabees, there's a legend in it, verses 1 to 8, that Jeremiah, the prophet, took the Ark of the Covenant, hid it in a cave at Mount Nebo. And Mount Nebo, if you remember, is the mountain from which Moses was able to see the promised land. So Maccabees is saying Jeremiah took this ark and hid it in that mountain because it would point to towards the promised land, not just the physical promised land, but the land that was to come. And then blocked up the entrance and prophesied that we would see the ark of the covenant again on the day that the Lord would come. That's in 2 Maccabees. The problem with Maccabees is when you look at the scriptures, it doesn't fit. Here's why. When you go to 2 Kings chapter 25, just flip over there with me, 2 Kings chapter 25. You get an indication of what actually happens to that ark. Remember, 2 Kings is taking us to that place where... Babylon is now coming into uh, Israel and Judah and overcoming the people of God and taking them into exile, right? So historically, when Nebuchadnezzar's forces came against Jerusalem, remember what they did? They destroyed the temple, right? So you have the Ark of the Covenant in the temple. And if you go to, to, to 2 Kings 25, beginning verse 8, you get an indication of what happened to the Ark of the Covenant. Here's what it says. In the fifth month, on the seventh day of the month, that was the 19th year, so even time stamped for you. Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, and Nebuchadnezzar, the captain of the bodyguard, a servant of the king, came to Jerusalem. Look at verse 9. And he burned the house of the Lord. So part of that destruction of the temple was, we're not only going to tear your building down, but we're going to burn it up. Okay. So the question is, well, did somebody take that ark out of the um, temple prior to Nebuchadnezzar coming in and destroying it? Because we have an indication here in Second Kings that n- no, uh, that temple was burned down to the ground. So... To answer the question with some degree of finality, you turn over to the prophet Jeremiah, and in Jeremiah chapter three, you get a legitimate word. So Isaiah and Jeremiah, contemporary prophets that are saying to, to Israel, "Come out of exile, come back to faith in Jesus Christ." Right? They would have called him Messiah. Is speaking. Verse 11, notice what Jeremiah says. He says, The Lord said to me, Faithless Israel has shown herself more righteous than treacherous Judah. Go proclaim these words toward the north and say, Return, faithless Israel, declares the Lord. I will not look on you in anger. I'm merciful, declares the Lord. I will not be angry forever. Only acknowledge your guilt that you rebelled against the Lord your God and scattered your favors among foreigners under every green tree and that you have not obeyed my voice, declares the Lord. Return, faithless children. I am your master. I will take you one from a city and two from a family. I will bring you to Zion. Now notice these next two verses. And I will give you shepherds after my own heart who will feed you with knowledge and understanding, and when you have multiplied and increased in the land in those days, declares the Lord, they shall no more say, the ark of the covenant of the Lord. It shall not come to mind, or be remembered, or missed, it shall not be made again. Alright? So, what what's happening is, In Revelation, you see the Ark. It's in heaven, right? It's a symbol, just a symbol, of the covenant that God made with man through Jesus Christ. The actual Ark, we believe, was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar when he came in and destroyed the temple and burned it up. And the people coming out of exile, remember, they would ultimately rebuild that temple. But one of the things they would not rebuild was that Ark of the Covenant. And so I hate to disappoint you, and I know it's crushing you to know this, but the movie didn't get it right. <laughs> Sorry about that. Um, I think it's a beautiful, I do, I think it's just a beautiful picture of the, of the end time when I get to see that I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Okay. Um, we're going to stop there, and where we'll pick up next week, the next two chapters are really interesting. Uh, Chapter 12 will give us what I'm going to call three independent pictures uh, that make up what a lot of theologians call the cosmic view of history. Uh, In other words, we're going to stop and and I'm going to do what we've done before with John. John, I'm going to take you and I'm going to show you the battle that has been going on from the beginning of time. And you actually get to look behind the curtains and see the battle that's gone on between God and God and Satan for all of, all of history, right? And then in chapter 13, we're going to see what are referred to as the two beasts of Revelation. One from the land, one from the sea. And uh, we'll hear about the mark of the beast and what that means. Let's pray. Lord God.